is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Tudor Advocates' new podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello listeners, my name is Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate. And my name is Errol Parker. And you are listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocate's surprisingly popular new podcast series aimed at discussing and analysing federal politics without using the type of confusing language that politicians use. So far, we've interviewed Christina Keneally from the Labor Party, Adam Bant from the Greens, and David Littleproud from the National Party. We've also interviewed Allegra Spender, the independent candidate for Wentworth. But today, we are lucky enough to finally get access to someone from the party in charge, the Liberal Party of Australia. Thank you for joining us, Senator Jane Hume, the Liberal Senator for Victoria. That's exactly right. Good to be with you guys. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. First question's a pretty hot one, straight out of the ranks. Senator Hume, why is it so hard for anyone other than Sky News to get an interview with anyone from the Liberal Party? <laughs> Mate, you've got no idea. We put it out there every day. We're on everything. I, I sort of feel like we saturate the channels. Aren't you sick of, you know, Carl Stefanovic talking to us and Koshy in the mornings? ABC can't get enough. We're all over the joint. Well, we, we've certainly struggled here at the Batuta Advocate, but we thank you for breaking ranks, breaking the protocol of the Liberal Party and joining us here today. We'll always get a gnat from time to time they because uh, they know we broadcast out there in the tractors. So uh, we had actually a very long yarn with Little Proud that just kind of ended Well, up yeah, way. you know, I think he's a bit nervous about Bob Catter getting his electorate at this upcoming election. So I think he's got to get his message out a bit further than the Maranoa. Oh, I think you do a great job, and you know I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller for you guys. And I, I listened to you to your podcast with um, Dave Littleproud. You know, the, what was it? The thriller from Chinchilla. Yeah, was that the was thriller from Chinchilla. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bloke with a high school education and a federal portfolio. It's a, <laughs> one of a kind. He's he proud of that too. Now, what we want to ask is, what you're currently working on? What's going on? Is everyone in election mode, or are you still actually working? Well, we're out doing, we're out and about, certainly, there's no doubt about it. You know, we know when the election is going to be. It's got to be before the end of May. So it's not as if we can sort of pussyfoot around and pretend it's not happening. Yeah, so, yeah, we're definitely out and about and talking to people in all sorts of electorates, marginal electorates, safe electorates, regional rural seats, urban seats as well. So, yes, we're, we're out and about. But the most important thing we've got on the agenda right now is getting ready for the budget, which is on the 29th of March. And that's a really big deal. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of work that goes into the budget from right across government. There's, there's a few costs that might have, might have arisen in the last couple of months that are going to have to be accounted for in the budget as well. I mean, namely the natural well, disasters. Particularly, yeah, particularly the floods in Queensland and, and in New South Wales. There's no doubt about it that's going to make an impact on the bottom line plus the work that's being done now to support the efforts in the Ukraine. You know, that's going to have an impact too. There's going to be some you know, economic changes because of what's just simply what's going on in, in Europe and uh, you know, the sanctions placed on Russia. So, yeah, look, every budget comes with a few surprise packages. There's no doubt about it. But, um, yeah, we just have to, have to deal with that one and 
take it on the chin and make sure that we work around it. We can't crowdfund our way out of this one. <laughs> no. no, look, and look, you know, let's be frank, the, you know, this is where government should step up when things like, uh, you know, crisis, whether it be a pandemic, whether it be, a, you know, a natural disaster, whether it be a military threat. This is where government comes to the fore. That's our job. Government can't solve every problem, no yep. doubt about it. But there are some problems that we should be able to solve. When capitalism goes bad. Mm-hmm. That's when we should do it, yeah. Capitalism doesn't go bad. The, to- well, the, ter- the term we came up with during uh, the pandemic was socialism. What do you think of that? <laughs> socialism, I haven't heard that one before. Look, there's no doubt about it that, uh, you know, the response that we had in the pandemic was very different from anything that we've ever had to deal with before. It was sort of like a warlike scenario. And in those sorts of circumstances, ideology has to go out the window. But that said, as you come out of the pandemic or whatever crisis it might be, you have to work within your values framework and say, well, how do we bring the country back onto an even keel and set it up for the future? So what is uh, the mood like at the moment in in the party room? Because we've just seen in, in the past couple of hours that Scott and Dom have had to take the reins of the New South Wales Liberal Party just because, you know, there are some few issues with pre-selection that weren't going to be going away. What's the mood like there at the moment? I actually think we're feeling very positive about the election generally. You know, it's very different reading what goes on on social media to listening to what's going on on the ground. Yeah. Just watch the ABC all day. You would seriously think that the world was a very different place to the one that it you know, actually is. So we're feeling quite positive. Look, there's always, you know, machinations going on in state divisions, you know, we're a federation, the Liberal Party is a federation of states, we don't always do things the same way, in the same way that you saw throughout the pandemic that Victoria did things very differently from New South Wales, for instance, or Queensland. So uh, I, I don't think there's anything to be concerned about there. We'll have our candidates on the ground and we'll be up and running very soon. That is something I want to talk to you about, like, you know, the difference between the bubbles, be that media bubbles, be that Canberra bubbles, or, you know, and, and the actual everyday voter sentiment. One of the reasons we've kind of uh, created this new podcast is because in our dealings with the punters, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of people, we get a lot of feedback. We have a lot of people that either read or listen to our stuff. And the one thing they always say, and I'm sure you've heard it said to you yourself at family barbecues with people you don't see that much, you know, they say both sides are just the same. What's the point? I mean, that's always that's something people have always said. You know, for centuries, they've always said that. Really, the the yeah. the swing voter or the disengaged voter will say that. We've actually seen that sentiment play out in the rise of the Palmers, the Lambies, the you know the third forces, the Pauline Hansons. Can you explain to us now why a bunch of lawyers from the Liberal Party are different to a bunch of lawyers from the Labor Party? <laughs> Can I assure you that we're not all lawyers? I'm certainly not a lawyer. Um, and, and to tell you the truth, there aren't as many lawyers as there used to be in Parliament. But what I can say is that there are good things and bad things about what you just said. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why both parties are towards the centre, that's a good thing in Australia, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, um, gives us a lot of political stability, is because we have compulsory voting. Mm-hmm. So that's actually sort of like a filter for democracy. It does create a very fair and reasonable outcome. But at the same time, it, it can then be accused of not being different enough from your opposition. Now, I personally don't think that's at all true. We come to the centre from very, very different directions. From my perspective, the Liberal Party is all about freedom and choices and personal responsibility. 
asking what you can contribute rather than what it is that you can take from government. You know, ensuring that businesses, uh, and particularly small business and personal aspiration and ambitions can be allowed to thrive and flourish on their own rather than putting up artificial barriers. You know, big government creates small citizens, so we want to see government withdraw itself from people's lives. And I think that they're the really distinguishing features of the Liberal Party uh, within the parliament. Now, you're always going to get sort of big personality people that come and go from parliament. That's been happening for decades. And look, it's a good thing. I think to, to some extent it shakes us up. But at the same time, I think that the fact that you've got those two quite centrist parties, although coming from very different perspectives, is a sign of political stability and something that Australia should be proud of. Well, just speaking on, on how the government, in terms of how much it intrudes into the lives of ordinary Australians, why was it you know, when you had just a few more days left of um, of the two houses being there, why did you choose the religious discrimination bill to put it forward first as opposed to, say, the federal corruption watchdog bill? Yeah, because both were commitments that we made at, prior to the last election. And we yeah. were quite running out of time. And you can understand why. So much of the legislative agenda that we anticipated being able to get through over three years was completely derailed by having to do massive COVID responses. Mm-hmm. You know, when we went out in 2020 in particular with those three packages, you know, first of all, the sort of the safety net package and, the, you know, the stimulus package, the safety net package, and then JobKeeper, you know, building the bridge to the other side, that was the equivalent of delivering three budgets in the space of about five weeks. And, it's, and that's fine to announce those things, but you then have to legislate for them, and that is equally difficult. So... At least 18 months of our legislative agenda was derailed. Yeah. We did find that we got to a bottleneck at the end of the parliamentary term and we had to make some tough decisions. We'd already put out our legislation for a federal ICAC or federal IBAC, whichever way you want to call it, and uh, and had put that out for you know, numerous consultations and everything else. The problem was we hadn't reached any consensus in the parliament and we weren't going to bring forward a piece of legislation that wasn't going to pass. But the religious discrimination was a different commitment and that was one that we felt was going to pass. Now, it didn't in the end. That's fine. Um, but it was worth having the debate. You mentioned before about what you said um, as, as the Liberal and your personal you know, value framework. It sounds very Victorian Liberals, what you were saying. It's, it reminds me a lot of Teddy the Toff from Turak and, um, and Josh Frydenberg and, you know, that... Obviously uh, not Timmy. <laughs> no, it reminds us a lot of that. And that's a very, you know, very Victorian Liberal thing. You, you're less of an LNP down there. You know, it's very yeah. much, we're talking, as you said, freedoms, less government, out of your lives, and less spending, you know, what can you do rather than what can we do for you? You know, that is an age-old liberal philosophy, liberal party philosophy in Australia. Howardism. Howardism, you know, just being a bit more, you're just watching the dollar a bit more, watching the bottom line. It does seem in this day and age, though, that the Morrison government are big spenders. And you can say that obviously they had to be JobKeeper, whatever, you know, as we said, socialism, there were reasons. But we, we are seeing money being spent that even, you know, a Labor voting dole bludger might say this is a bit red hot. You know, we, yeah. why do we need to spend, you know, in the billions on – rather, they look like dodgy kind of uh, programs. Like we, we just the, heard today. The ABC. 
ABC's for one, or the yeah. or the five hundred million dollars you give to kind of contractors from PNG, and these are big sums of money, and we're feeling like we haven't seen this kind of money thrown around so willy nilly. It looks like there's just tick of the pen, and uh, Dutton's got a new security contractor that no one knows much about and doesn't seem like it went to tender like how do you kind of reconcile that kind of spending that's happening under morrison we've only really seen it under the current prime minister that's not entirely true i mean to begin with scott morrison was the treasurer that was really the one that brought the budget back into line and in fact when i first got this portfolio and walked into a treasury ministry, the first job that we thought we were going to do was to deliver a budget surplus. The uh, MAIFO in November, just before the budget in 2020, I think that the deficit then was like $700 million. Today, that doesn't really seem like very much money. And we really were. We were going to land that budget. And of course, COVID really threw it out of the water. But I think that what you're saying, though, is a sign of the times. There are things now that we have to spend money on that we never used to, say, even 15, 20 years ago. Cybersecurity is a really good example. It's just a constant threat. And it's not as if it's a a one-off spend that you can say, right, well, you know, there's half a billion dollars and that'll be fixed now. It's a constant threat, a constant threat, which is why we have to keep updating our systems and making sure that they are for purpose. So I would disagree with you. Yes, there are some big ticket items out there, but fiscally, I think you'll find, particularly in the budget coming up, it's going to be far more business as usual, back within that liberal framework of, uh, you know, making sure that essential services are delivered, whether it be NDIS or Medicare or PBS, but at the same time that we move back into, well, what is it that is government's responsibility versus the private sector's responsibility? And where there is some grey areas, how do we work with the private sector to better leverage their skills and, and, and abilities rather than always turning to government to try and solve every single problem? Is this what drew you to, I mean, I'll, I'll ask the question we ask everyone. You know, you seem to be talking a lot about fiscal responsibility and, and that seems to be something that is a passion of yours in politics. And all of our other guests were kind of asked to explain their ideologies and their and their different, you know, career paths that led them to their chosen party. With David Littleproud, you know, you've got an accountant from Chinchilla, third generation Nat, that makes sense, he'd go with the Nationals. Adam Bantz, a tree-hugging lawyer from Frio, that definitely makes sense that he yeah. would end up one day leading the Greens. Now, Senator, I want to ask you, in 2013, as a young woman from inner Melbourne with a background in media and commerce, what on earth drew you to a party full of old Christian men with elbow patches on their tweed coats? Uh, Clancy, can I just say how much I love the fact that you said that I was young in 2013, first of all, because that makes me feel much better. That's but one of the reasons why I joined the Liberal Party is because, you know, hey, I'm nearly 50, well, I'm 50 now, and they still refer to me as one of the young women in the Liberal Party. That's a good thing. <laughs> so uh, I didn't actually have a background in media. I was always in finance and investment. I did have a couple of stints in, on boards of various organisations, but I specifically worked in superannuation before I entered Parliament. And absolutely loved it, but always felt that we could do more, we could do better. I love social impact investment, for instance. How do we you know, better use the skills of the private sector to solve some of the most intractable social problems, profit with the purpose? All of that sort of stuff has always been something that I've been interested in. And politics was, I never actually intended really to enter politics. That wasn't my, you know, when I grow up, I want to be the prime minister kind of thing. It was just an interest that ran alongside my career. 
And then an opportunity opened up to walk in to, um, to, the, to the center spot. Now, that sounds like it was really easy. It wasn't. It was quite complicated. I was heavily involved with the party organization and in a voluntary capacity. I ran a lot of campaigns and things as a volunteer before I entered politics. But I was, think I was really lucky. I was the right person at the right time to take on this portfolio. You know, superannuation, financial services, digital economy, women's economic security. These are things that I'm genuinely interested in and was interested in before I entered politics and have a level of, uh, of experience and expertise in too. So it's great to be able to add value to a portfolio the moment you start it. And now that you've been in the, in the role for a couple of years, is there anything in the job that you didn't really expect? Oh, like, yeah, thousands of things that I didn't really expect. But on, on the upside, as opposed to the downside, I love meeting the people, particularly the digital economy portfolio. Do you know, the tech sector in Australia is nearly now the third biggest employer in the country. We are going gangbusters in this sector. There are some seriously bright minds. And it's fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, sector for women, too, in particular, because there's huge demand for these jobs. You know, so women are being paid more, they get much better, higher paid jobs, and they're really kicking goals. And, and there's so many startups as well that are really making inroads. So I have loved that part of the portfolio. I have really high hopes for the tech sector in Australia in the future. It's the best way to diversify the economy, as well as take those sort of traditional industries that we've got like construction and mining and agriculture and, and create whole new opportunities for productivity gains there, whether it's using drones in agriculture or whether it's using sensors in buildings so that you know when to do the repairs and maintenance or, um, you know, Internet of Things or, or, you know, AI or whatever it might be. This is really exciting stuff. And Australia is genuinely at the forefront. We're all on, as you know, someone who's... Uh publication is, is predominantly online you know we have a print circulation but we know that that's going to die out there with Foxtel and other you know all these other uh, old media kind of uh, <laughs> formats but you know the way you're talking you are talking this kind of Atlassian this Canva this this new world where not to mention all the other kind of uh, you know afterpays all the things that have come through Australian tech and it takes us back to a time not that long ago when you first were elected into the Senate. You know, the Liberal Party was a, de- a very different place. Malcolm Turnbull was leader, a man who made his name in politics in a very similar field to you, you know, your, your career before politics. And, and the entire pitch under Turnbull was the age of innovation. We were talking about this stuff in 2016, what we're talking about right now. Now... Can you tell me that this that this party is the same party? It's I mean we've changed leader. Obviously we've got you pushing you know and championing tech in Canberra, but there's a lot the, the they've stacked the ranks a bit differently. There's a lot more religion getting thrown around nowadays. And actually last election it felt like the Liberal Party's pitch was nothing's going to change. Well, a hell of a lot did change, didn't it? Though whether it was by design or by default, no, 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 no. a lot, a lot changed. A lot <laughs> But, you know, interesting you picked up on that because, yeah, you're right. In 2016, which was the election where I first came into Parliament, Malcolm Turnbull was talking about we want an innovative and agile economy, which is great, except for the fact that all people heard was, oh, God, you know, I'm a truck driver or a forklift driver and I don't know how to code, so I'm going to lose my job out of this. This is a disastrous idea. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, COVID came along and now tech is almost ubiquitous. You know, the fact that you and I are speaking... The way we are today is, mm-hmm. you know, tech in, you know, writ large. QR codes. Who'd used a QR code before COVID? Cashless payments. All this sort of stuff now is second nature. So how do we now harness that new acceptance 
of the digital economy and say, right, well, you know, let's take Australia to the next great level. This is our burning platform. You know, other countries, they've been doing this stuff before because they've had to do so for a military or a strategic or a geopolitical imperative. We haven't had that. But now we have this great opportunity and we've got so many bright minds that I just want to grasp the nettle. In my mind, government's responsibility here is to make sure the right incentives are in place, make sure that we get the regulations right, and then get out of the way because yep. government doesn't have the answers here. The private sector does. That's the pitch. It sounds like what you're saying right now, there would be a lot of people sitting down there and, you know, wherever, Byron, Australia's New Silicon Valley, there'd be people that are loving what they're hearing. Can you explain, though, you know, socially... I guess, progressive, fiscally conservative. I'm not sure if that's how you describe yourself. I know a lot of Victorian liberals do describe themselves that way. That does feel to be, and I can only say this, you know, it might sound like a partisan comment, but, you know, the liberals have been in power for, um, you know, the best part of two decades now. It does feel like a lot of these old codgers in your party need to be dragged kicking and screaming to certain ideas. Gay marriage was certainly one of them. That could have been done very differently and a lot faster. Would have been done pretty well with a bit of tech as well we probably didn't need to uh postal vote that whole thing and then you've got ideas like the ones you're talking about today when we know that there are feelings where renewables and 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 you know nbn was something that i just saw was reading up the other day during the 2011 floods tony abbott suggested scrapping the nbn to pay for disaster relief you know you've got a lot of dinosaurs that kind of think oh well that's not that important how do you champion these ideas when you do have a um you know a few status quo joes well, you know, that's the real power of politics, isn't it, is the power to persuade. That's our job, is to persuade. And, look, the good thing about the Liberal Party is it is quite, you know, and I know we talk about the broad church and there's a pew for everybody and all that sort of stuff. That's all fine. But when it comes down to it, what that really means is that it does represent a broad spectrum of the entire country. And there are some people in the party, yeah, that do have to be persuaded to move in a particular direction. And there are some in the party that have to be persuaded to move in another direction. But I actually think that that filter, if you like, makes for much better policymaking rather than that sort of authoritarian one or two or three people saying, this is what the party's going to do. And everyone goes, oh, is that right? Okay, well, we all have to vote yes. We actually argue it out. And sometimes that arguing is uncomfortable and frustrating and, you know, you pull out your hair and, and, you know, why can't people see it from my perspective? But that's Australia, isn't it? Everybody has a different perspective. We want to be as, um, as recognise all those different perspectives as much as we possibly can. So oh, it's like a microcosm of the country in the party room. That's a great thing. It is a, the broad church, the big ten. It is, it is a great thing to have all these different ideas, but sometimes it doesn't work out, as we've seen with you know the leadership spills. Uh, that's where I want to kind of ask you. There, there seem to be a couple moments in the history of um, the last few governments where they weren't going to be resolved through pulling your hair out and debating. Can you tell us what it was like during those troubled times, the troubles, uh, I guess, a uh, couple of weeks there in 2018? Someone relatively new to the job at the time, what were you doing? Were you ducking for cover? Were people rallying you? Do we, how do you deal with that? We know when there's blood in the water, it's not as civil as anyone wants to kind of pretend it is. And, you know, we took it to a vote and then we decided to change our leader. It, you know, I dare say people were fantasizing about having people assassinated within your party. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite that far. But um, it was, look, it, that was pretty horrible stuff. That, that was pretty horrible times. And I wouldn't want to go back to that. And I don't think that we will. I hope that the party has. Uh, has learned its lesson, that that's just not who we are. 
Um, we don't topple leaders. Doesn't matter whether they come from the more sort of cultural traditionalist side of the party or the you know more progressive side of the party. We just don't do that. The real problem, of course, is not the contest of ideas. It's the contest of personalities, and uh, and I think that that's really where we you know we we can run into trouble. But um, I think that, that really genuinely is behind us now. I don't ever want to see it again. I don't ever want to see it again. But I think it's made me a much tougher politician than I was when I walked in. There were uh, a lot of people on our on our travels around uh, Western Queensland over the past two years because we couldn't really go anywhere else besides the Territory and over to WA for a little while. They were saying that, you know, a lot of people, especially in the National Party, have kind of resigned to the fact that, that you know, this election's looking a bit kind of shaky, but none of them are too concerned about it because the way that politics and government essentially works in this country is that you've got a conservative government in power for 10 or 15 years, you've got one term of Labor that spends all, all the money, and, you know, schools get air conditioning and, you know, things like that, and then it snaps back. In a perfect world, though, would the Liberal Party just be in charge forever? Well, in my perfect world, certainly the Liberal Party would be in charge forever. Look, so you, like you, a one-party thing like they have <laughs> like a, yeah, a, in exactly. China and Russia and stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, look, it's really important to make sure that there is that contest of ideas, not just within the party, but external, but between the parties as well. And with the crossbench and with the Greens and, you know, from all, from all corners. As I said, you know, we really do have a very stable democracy in Australia, something that I don't necessarily think we appreciate until we look across to our neighbours in the north and see, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, an authoritarian regime mm. now invading a liberal democracy. You can see how quickly... You know, I think the resistance of the Ukrainians is just amazing. It's just so courageous. But um, the frightening effects of an authoritarian regime is, uh, you know, chilling. It really is chilling. So we are very lucky here. And I sometimes think it's something that we don't necessarily understand enough or appreciate enough until we can see the alternative. The party is quite big, you know. You've got a lot of people that you need to know in Victoria at a state level. There's a lot of people, as we learned with what's happening in New South Wales today, um, everyone actually needs to be engaged in all levels of their own, you know, area. You're a senator for Victoria in Parliament House in Canberra, but you've also got to know what's going on on the ground. What is your feeling with the uh, Victorian Liberal Party? Because, I mean, it feels like it would take a pretty catastrophic situation for Dan Andrews to look like the best option after the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I still scratch my head that uh, so many people can be out there on Twitter saying what a great job Dan Andrews has done over the last two years. Um, oh, well, you know, know, it's all the people who live very close to the river. <laughs> you know, I think they the live pretty close you know. to Dan Andrews' office too, actually. But, yeah, look, you know, can I tell you, I sat next to my good friend John Pesuto uh, at the state election in the ABC studios when we were calling the state election and watched him lose his seat on television at the last election. I thought that was a great tragedy because he was he's such a fine man and a, and a great parliamentarian. So we'll be coming from a long way from behind at the next election. Oh, great, good to see that John's running again. And I feel that Matthew really has hit his stride this time around too, and he's got some really good policies out there. I think that Dan Andrews is 
heading up a very weak government now. I mean, four ministers have left through corruption. He's got rebellions on the backbench. He's got a factional, just a barn fight between the left and the right. So he's got an awful lot to contend with. And of course, he's got a really angry population. We were shut down longer than anybody down here. My eldest son missed out on 160 days of his last two years at school. Oh, that's and I, tough. Like, Brutal. Terrible, terrible the best, stuff. The, the two best years of your life, they say. He'll be right. He'll be on Kentucky in no time. Yeah. <laughs> like his mother. I did a Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, the best way to see the world. We've got a toilet break here. There's a service station there if you want to go get a bottle of water and the Coliseum's just over there if you want to yeah. um, go see that as well. We'll be here for Do 10 minutes. you know, minutes. Uh, I, I, I did a different one. I did. I went to the Greek islands and I, I did a, a boat trip around the Greek islands uh, for two weeks and I wore my bed sheet as a toga for a fortnight. I, I really don't <laughs> Oh, before the pandemic, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you saying there... Um, Dan Andrews, and I don't like calling him Dan because we're not from down there. His name's Daniel. Taliban Dan, actually, is a pretty good one. We <laughs> know that he's got a lot of dissent in his ranks and he's got a lot of angry people. I mean, Victoria, yeah, as you said, Victorians are angry. They've given a lot and they've had a lot taken from them. Yeah. But in, in the same breath, we could start seeing um, a few people getting a little bit tapped in the uh, Victorian liberals. And, and, and a few people started to wade into those waters of conspiracy how do you deal with that? Someone who's, you know, as we learnt and as you've explained, a common sense liberal, how do you deal with the likes of Tim Smith, you know, saying some of the things he's saying online and in person and, in, and to the media? Because it does happen a bit, you know, further up central Queensland, you start hearing a few similar ideas as well uh, yeah. on, on a federal level. How do you deal with that? Because that's a bit more than just a broad church of ideas. That Now we're starting to talk about some dangerous rhetoric. And some dangerous driving too. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, look, uh, when members of our party start speaking out on issues that they feel particularly passionate about, they are given a fair bit of rope. You know, we don't muzzle people. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think it's really important to say that they don't represent the government's views, the government's policies. Uh, you certainly wouldn't hear that sort of rhetoric coming from the ministry, the ones that are actually making the decisions. So it's a fine line. We have to make sure that the government's message has been made very clear, but at the same time, we want to make sure that people feel free to express themselves. It's part of our, our values of who we are. Now, if it's getting dangerous, if it's spreading misinformation, well, that's something different again and something that does need to be addressed. And I think that you'd be you know, pretty clear that's happened with, say, for instance, George Christensen. Mm -hmm. you know, the misinformation that he was spreading has been condemned by the party of which he was a part. So it's a fine line, but we have to walk it. What would someone have to do to get sacked in this day and age? Because I remember John Howard <laughs> used to sack people for not declaring colour televisions when they came back from overseas. What yeah, would someone well, have to do? I don't actually think that it's a very uh, you know, long list. I mean, you know, if there's any elements of corruption, if there's uh, certainly that would be a sackable offence. So I think demonstrated lack of integrity, um, undermining the government, I think all of those things are entirely inappropriate. But it's not for me to sack anybody. It's for the Australian people to yep. choose yeah. their, their local representatives and they're the ones that sack them and that's what happens at elections. Now, um, Senator, you've, you've had to answer for a lot of people's sins in this interview and we appreciate it. You shouldn't have to carry that cross. Uh, you're in the game. You're in the tech game. You should be up there with, what's his name? With three last names? Mike Cannon-Brooks. Cannon-Brooks. Cannon that's Brooks. your people. That's who you're, they're, they're your constituents. <laughs> 
Now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not it. Maybe, maybe maybe there's some others in the tech game that you, I have you, met you... Scott Farquhar, his, part, his partner. He's a, he's, a, he's a very good fella. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's what we want to kind of end more, on a more of a positive note. And this is something we ask every guest we have on here. What is the one thing you want to achieve in the next term of parliament? Uh, well, can I tell you, you know, the stuff that we've already done, I think is fantastic. I mean, in, in my portfolio anyway, I'm not going to talk to you about superannuation because apparently every time I do, the audience nods off. But that's been an amazing area of reform of, and, a, and a massive achievement in in this government. More people are retiring with more money now because of the changes we've made in the last three years than they ever have before and they will do in the future. So that's something that I am particularly excited about. What I would like to do in the future, I think I touched on it before, I would really like to harness the skills of the private sector to solve some of our big social issues. You can already see people doing this in places like, you know, Twiggy Forest is doing some great things with Indigenous communities, for instance, as part of his Mindaroo Foundation. He's doing some good work with early childhood development as well. You know, government doesn't have all the answers, but it can better identify what the problems are and direct the skills of the private sector to help out there and incentivise them to do so. You know, we know that if you, you know, take, let's say, a first-time offender from prison and help them to not re-offend, it actually saves the public purse an enormous amount of money. So how do we then set the program in place that actually work, measure the outcomes and pay for success? Not government running the program, but the private sector running the program and the government paying for the outcomes that will save the public purse in the future. It's a combination of you know, good, socially responsible uh, policy, but at the same time being fiscally responsible as well. I love that stuff. And I'd really like to see the Liberal Party dig deep and, uh, and, and get far more involved in the social impact investment space. And just quickly, one more question just before we go. What opinion uh, does the Batuta Advocate hold in the Liberal Party? What's the reputation of this newspaper? <laughs> It is one of your articles are probably the most shared articles of any newspaper out there, I would say. Certainly that's not just within the Liberal Party room, I'd say that it was with my within my family too. My kids love the Batuta Advocate and often send me articles that uh, make fun of me and what I'm doing, but that's hey, that's all good. I reckon if you um, you should take your job very seriously, but don't necessarily take yourself all that seriously. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens if Labor wins government because we haven't had the online... Hush your mouth. Hush your mouth. We haven't had the online edition of the newspaper during a Labor government, so we'll see what happens. Shame you couldn't see us during Rudd Gillard Rudd. Yeah. Very busy time out in the Channel Country, that was. Oh, very good. Well, no, I enjoyed watching from the sidelines. (laughs) Well, you may have just avoided a nickname, Senator Hume. We'll do this again sometime. This has been a great interview and uh, all the best with everything you're running into this election with. Thank um, you. How did I avoid a nickname? It does say here actually on your background that you worked in sales and marketing research. So, Janie from marketing, does that work? Oh, no, 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 I'll take that one. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, yeah, as we said, uh, all the best through the next few months. Great to be with you guys. Great to meet you.